All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. The formative years of the narrative form had been very dependent on adapting ready-made texts, particularly literary texts. Despite the fame of the play-to-film adaptions because of the similar manner in which they are presented, which is through visuals, novels actually share more similarities with films in terms of telling the story. This is mainly because of how there is more fidelity in terms of translating the literary essence of a novel to the cinematic context of a film. If we notice, plays are very much heavy on the dialogue, thus a reliance on dramatization, whereas the novel provides us with an insight beyond the dialogue. Of course, there is no literal fidelity in the novel-to-film adaptations, thus the constant alterations which alter during the production of the adaptation. One instance of such alteration would be compromising of the length of the story in order to fit the cinematic standard of a two-hour film. Here we need to take a peek at the various ways a novel can be adapted. A novel is closely adapted when most of the novelistic elements are retained during the adaptation process. As for the loose adaptation, a majority of the cinematic elements are dropped in the literal text, was simply used as point of reference for the movie. It emerged during the transition of film from being a cinema of attractions to a narrative style. Filmmakers also realized that if they were to attract an audience, particularly well-off audiences from the middle class, they had to make sure that they were to appeal to their interests, thus adapting popular classic literature commonly enjoyed by the middle class. It is also important to remember that in adapting a text, it means that it's novelistic or theatrical if it's from a play. Elements are being translated to a more cinematic context, which is why there is and always will be alterations to be made in the adaptation process in order to fit the traditional filmic standards of cinema. Irian Du, journalism graduate from the University of the Philippines. So we bring up all this stuff about film adaptation, and that's because we're focusing on the third best picture winner, All Quiet on the Western Front, which is from the same, which is of the novel of the same name by Eric Maria Remarque. And one of the things that stood out to me from what John was reading from was the term cinema of attractions. So I want to know how John perceives or takes in that phrase cinema of attractions, because I find it to be a very unique way to talk about film. Well, I think uh, it's important to take the adaptation route in, in mind when they're talking about cinema of attractions. I think it's bringing up the notion of what cinema is made for. And I think at the time, you know, you're trying to draw people into this new art form, whether it's purely just entertainment or not, they just want butts and seats. So I don't know if there's something more to cinema attractions than simply being something that's there to bring, to just attract people to the cinema, to simply create something that's provocative or just purely entertaining to get someone into the seats. Right. And, but for me, it becomes a difference when we're talking about we're talking about war or people going through mental struggles because I think it then goes beyond entertainment because are we entertaining ourselves with people's struggles, with horrors of the world, with the, the things that just happen that are just awful to others, but then gets adapted into a film and then we start to love it. And I think there's a very modern trend and there's a trend early on with best picture winners that they tend to be about tougher they have tougher subject matters and those are those oscar Beatty films so when is that line what's that fine line between entertainment and a history lesson almost or that cinema of attractions because is the attraction 
the film itself from a technical standpoint or is it from the story of the film I, and I yeah think that's that, certainly yeah. an interesting question to pose yeah it's just a phrase I, that i think that is was pretty interesting when talking about uh, adaptations because a lot of adaptations if, especially if they're coming from novels can be just on tougher subject matter from a wide range of things well i think when that question comes down to it it's it's really for me it's more about fiction versus nonfiction, and i think fiction is is very much there to sometimes teach you things to show you an experience and i think that's definitely the case um for this film when we talk about it more but it's it's something that's always going to be dramatized more you know it's something that's just you want more people to see it so they might change smudge things adjust things to heighten everything you know you want a film to be as high tension as high drama as possible and maybe that's not exactly how it happened in real life but do you think that's okay for us to consume definitely definitely i think really for me i'm very open when it comes to adaptions i think you know they're two different mediums uh, especially from literature to film so you have to take strong strong liberties especially when it comes from like the POV standpoint of just characters in general, especially when we're talking about like a first person book or uh, an omniscient being who's telling the story through a text. It's, it's very different. And I think you just have to change and adjust for the separate medium, sort of whether that's good or bad. What about when it comes to, to history, because when we're talking about all quiet on the Western front, it's a combination of a novel and, and history. And for me, sure. for me, I've always felt that if we're talking about a film adaptation that's based off of history, we shouldn't be changing too much because then that's not justifying the true experiences of the people who went through it. Um, and that's not always the case of everything that happens. But for something like this, when it shows a lot of the pains of war and the mental aspects of it, um, I think it'd be... It, when we're, and then when we're talking about cinema of attractions, it it's like it goes so many different ways. The rope is being pulled by, by both sides so well that all of a sudden you, you don't know what to make of it and you want to be able to enjoy it. But then you also feel <laughs> shitty that you're almost enjoying people's pain. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely such a large topic in this film just because it is um, very hard to watch at certain times. It's very intense. Um, I don't even know if I would call the film entertaining, though. It definitely has like some spectacle elements, um, but, but, but it's yeah, an that's attraction. a huge question when it comes down. But it's an attraction. Yeah, definitely. Right? I mean, it's made to draw people, right? Yeah, definitely, of course. Yeah, and this. But that's really dependent on the viewer, though, whether you find it entertaining or provocative enough to not be entertaining. I guess. Yeah. No, it, definitely, and it's not like adaptations are a new thing with cinema. I know you have a list of. Uh, films that came out before All Quiet on the Western Front, but I think what makes this film unique is what it the subject matter is. So it's important to note that like All Quiet on the Western Front is one of the first big um, and really truly one of the first motion pictures that was based off a literary text, but that wasn't a short film. So when we look back at uh, A Trip to the Moon, uh, which is based off of from the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne, and also the first Men in the Moon by H.G. Wells, uh, which was 1902. Um, now, this is a very, you know, comical and stage vaudeville-like production, which is a short film. And then we move forward to Alice in Wonderland, which is actually never released. 
which is based on Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, uh, what was released at the time, but it uh, supposedly was lost, uh, like so many uh, silent films of its era. Moving from there, we have L'Inferno, which is based off of the Divine Comedy by Dante Alighieri from 1911. The very controversial The Birth of a Nation, based on The Klansman and the Leopard Spots by Thomas E. Dixon Jr. from 1915. And that's all we'll mention of that insane propaganda racist film. Yep. Nosferatu, based on Bram Stoker's Count Dracula from 1922. The first notable William Shakespeare adaptation, The Taming of the Shrew, based on The Taming of the Shrew by William Shakespeare from 1929, which then leads us to All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remarque. April 21st, 1930. Yeah, so when we are looking at this list of film adaptations, I think this one really stands out, again, because of its subject matter and the fact that the novel came out only a year before the film came out. So this this became a very huge thing and a huge production um, and, wide, and universally, for the most part, loved. There are some who didn't, and we will get into that a little bit later on. So it then forces me to ask you the question, John, is All Quiet on the Western Front worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1929-1930? So welcome back to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. So yeah, we're tackling the third Best Picture winner from 1929-30, uh, which is All Quiet on the Western Front. And... Before getting into it, the first title card of the film, yes, there are still title cards in these movies. Uh, maybe a talkie, f- but there's title cards. Yeah, maybe a talkie, but there is title cards. I think it actually sets up the feel, the the tones, the themes, whatever you may may want to call it about the film. But I think it sets it up really nicely to get you in to the mindset of what is about to happen on screen. So the film starts like this. The story is neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure, for death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped its shells, were destroyed by the war. All quiet on the Western Front. A German youth eagerly enters World War I, but his enthusiasm wanes as he gets a first-hand view of the horror. Professor Kantarek gives an an impassioned speech about the glory of serving in the army and saving the fatherland. On the brink of becoming men, the boys in his class, led by Paul Balmer, are moved to join the army as the new second company. Their romantic delusions are quickly broken during their brief but rigorous training under the abusive Corporal Himmelstoss, who bluntly informs them, you're going to be soldiers, and that's all. The new soldiers arrive by train at the combat zone, which is in mayhem, with soldiers everywhere in coming shells, horse-drawn wagons racing about in prolonged rain. One in the group is killed before the new recruits can reach their post. The new soldiers are assigned to a unit composed of older soldiers who are not exactly accommodating. The young soldiers find that there is no food available at the moment. They have not eaten since breakfast, but the men they have joined have not had food for two days. One of them, Cat, had gone to locate something to eat, and he returns with a slaughtered hog he has stolen from a field kitchen. The young soldiers pay for their dinner with soaps and cigarettes. The new recruit's first trip to the trenches with the veterans to restring barbed wire is a harrowing experience, especially when Ben is blinded by shrapnel hysterically runs into machine gun fire. After spending several days in a bunker under bombardment, 
they at last move into the trenches and successfully repulse an enemy attack. They then counterattack and take an enemy trench with heavy casualties, but have to abandon it. They are sent back to the field kitchens to get their rations, and each man receives double helpings, simply because of the number of dead. They hear that they are to return to the front the next day and begin a semi-serious discussion about the causes of the war and of wars in general. They speculate about whether geographical entities offend each other and whether these disagreements involve them. Chaden speaks familiarly about himself and the Kaiser. Cat jokes that instead of having a war, the leaders of Europe should be stripped to their underwear and fight it out with clubs. One day, Corporal Himmelsauce arrives at the front and is immediately spurned because of his bad reputation. He is forced to go over the top of the second command and is promptly killed. In attack on a cemetery, Paul stabs a French soldier but finds himself trapped in a hole with a dying man for an entire night. Throughout the night, he desperately tries to help him, bring him water, but fails to stop him from dying. He cries bitterly and begs the dead body to speak so he can be forgiven. Later, he returns to the German lines and is comforted by Cap. Going back to the front line, Paul is severely wounded and taken to a Catholic hospital, along with his good friend Albert Krop. Krop's leg is amputated, but he does not find out until some time afterwards. Around this time, Paul is taken to the bandaging ward, from which, according to its reputation, nobody has ever returned alive. But he later returns to the normal rooms triumphantly, only to find Krop in depression. Paul is given a furlough and visits his family at home. He is shocked by how uninformed everyone is about the actual situation of the war. Everyone is convinced that the final push for Paris is soon to occur. When Paul visits the schoolroom where he was originally recruited, he finds Professor Kantarek prattling the same patriotic fervor to a class of even younger students. Professor Kandarak asked Paul to detail his experience, at which the latter reveals that war was not at all like he had envisioned, and mentions the death of his partners. This revelation upsets the professor as well as the young students who promptly call Paul a coward. Disillusioned and angry, Paul returns to the front and comes upon another second company that is filled with new young recruits who are now disillusioned themselves. He is then happily greeted by Chaden. He goes to find Kat and they discuss the inability of the people to comprehend the futility of the war. Kat's shin is broken when a bomb dropped by an aircraft falls nearby. So Paul carries him back to a field hospital, only to find that Kat had been killed by a second explosion. Crushed by the loss of his mentor, Paul leaves. In the final scene, Paul is on the front line. He sees a butterfly just beyond his trench. Smiling, he reaches out to the butterfly. While reaching, however, he is shot and killed by an enemy sniper. The final sequence shows the second company arriving at the front for the very first time, fading out over an image of a cemetery. All Quiet on the Western Front, directed by Louis Milestone. Written by Eric Marie Remark, the adaptation by Maxwell Anderson and Del Andrews, and the screenplay by George Abbott. Cat, played by Lewis Walheim. Paul, played by Lou Ayers. Produced by Carl Lamel Jr. Cinematography by Arthur Edison. Film editing by Edgar Adams. All Quiet on the Western Front was nominated for Outstanding Production, Best Director, Best Writing, and Best Cinematography. So when me and John first watched this movie and started talking about how we were going to approach the episode, the thing that jumped out for both of us was really the heavy-handedness of the anti-war message that was coming across 
because it's truly powerful to to watch these boys because they really were boys going to war realizing just how truly awful it was especially for a, a war like world war one where there was almost no rules to how they approached the warfare and the battles certainly and the, the way the film is constructed especially from a like writing standpoint um obviously you have the first title card which is very indicative indicative of what the film is going to be from here on out you know you know the kind of message of the film from the very first frame which is a bold move i think it's very heavy-handed but the film is successful i think throughout it in portraying that message through its characters um but sometimes a little little heavy-handed when it came to yeah it, it definitely does and to be upfront and frank me and John have not read the novel that it was based off of, but I actually think that opening title card was how the book opened based on the research that we were doing. But anyways, it's still extremely powerful and was one of the lines that truly stuck with audiences who saw the film. And then when we talk about the writing and the message behind it, it, it almost went hand in hand with the, with the adaptation of it, you know, that it was based off of a novel that preached this. It came from the perspective of a person who actually went through the war, who felt that, they had to put words down to paper because they couldn't describe what the feeling that so many people were, were going through. I mean, this, the war ended in 1917, 1918. And this is only 12 years later that this film comes out. The book came out a year before. So only 11 years later and just the strong message that it promotes of just, and it shows how truly horrific that what everyone went through and the lasting impact it, it even still has today about war kind of sets up the general feelings and i think actually the momentum behind it to where the film was successful it was preaching something that a lot of people were feeling at the time yeah i'm sure they were still feeling the reminiscence of uh you know the first world war i think that's definitely truly depicted throughout the film from what i've read from the, the first world war as well as just some other films that i've seen this film is one of the most like grounded and just seems to be truly character driven um based all around the war yeah we're talking about the war specifically uh i think that the one scene that pops out to me is the scene in the bunker when they're i think they're in there for a week (laughs) they're in this bunker and they're being just bombed for those who haven't seen the movie or are not familiar with it so basically the second company is inside this bunker in the trenches and one by one each of them start to freak out as each bomb hits as the roof above them starts to crumble a little bit more as they start to get cramped in more and more they all start to show start freaking out and i and it's actually kind of the first part of the movie where they start to crack they were starting to feel you know a little bit of like hesitation when when on the first night going the trenches when they were setting up the barbed wires and seeing you know their friend killed almost immediately when they first get to the second company at the battlefields but this is where everything starts to crack, where the, the all that mental distraught, all the post-traumatic stress disorder, like all that is clearly evident, like stemming from the scene. And I think it's very powerful because it wasn't shown before that most it wasn't a a popular thing to depict of people's mental uh, mental anxieties and what they were and the stresses they were going through because of war and so that's where this film really stands out because it's so early on in the academy's history in film history where it's like whoa this is very different and i for me it it's showed uh it showed that films like saving private ryan 
really took inspiration from this because of the gore and the PTSD things that they were able to like put into this. Yeah, the true trauma, which I think compared to the first Oscar winner Wings, where it's such like a joyful ride. I mean, there is the traumatic turn where uh, the main character essentially kills his best friend by accident. And that's like kind of the drama intention is that there's one death. But this is just like, what if the whole movie was that? Like, not that you're hurting your allies, but it's just constant fear of death, like constant reminder that every step you take could be your last and the constant fear of just you know, fearing the enemy and fearing the other. And then on the other hand, also promoting war and pushing war to be something that's so grandiose and honorable for your country when this film is trying to show that, like, there's a lot more. Yeah, definitely. And then when we, yeah, when you compare it to Wings, Wings is, it's almost happy-go-lucky, you know, with how it shows war and how they approach it. Like, Jack and David are like, let's, you know, they're kind of like, let's fucking go (laughs) with war and like, let's fight. And then with Paul and, and the rest of the other guys and all quiet on the Western front, they, they are very inspired and ready to go in the opening scene with P- professor Kantarek. But then all of a sudden that, that changes so quickly in the movie that there's not enough time for them to be happy, go lucky about them fighting. Cause before that they even get to shoot and kill people, some of their own are already dead. They've already been bombed at. Yeah, I think the way that they're dramatized up in the very beginning to be like so gleeful and excited and and the the cool shots where you like kind of zoom dolly into the characters as they like kind of show their almost like background. It's like the only characterization you get from the characters from the very beginning to set them up. Um, But then it just immediately, like you said, just kind of crashes into the war and it's like pure chaos. Everybody's screaming when the first like bombs start coming in and then the guy gets blinded and he dies. And it's like, oh, shit, this is way different than everyone's been talking about. This is very, very, very scary. Yeah, yeah, it's it's so incredibly different. And I think that sets up like what we want to talk about next, which is the actual battles of this movie, which it felt so it felt realistic in some parts. Some parts are a little you know, okay, it was 1930. They couldn't have all these crazy special effects, but it was still pretty impressive for what they were able to pull off uh, for the time. No, it's it's insanely impressive. I, I was reading a little bit about it. They built like a specific cement crane with like these cement ramps to, in order to like go over and have these long like dolly shots of or crane shots of the the huge war and the battle scene as the men hop out of the bunkers and they run across and sprint at each other and. Um, just the amount of like violence that's in this film and it's not it does shy away from it a little bit but compared to wings and these other films that we've seen so far it it is so in your face when it comes to like death and destruction yeah and i think that's what plays into the whole anti-war message is that it's showing you how brutal it is and i don't think people got a true glimpse of that and especially with like wings when you watch that i i didn't get a sense that like war was like I mean, I knowing now it's bad, but it was very watching that, it's like, film, yeah. yeah, it was very honorable. It it seemed, it seemed almost easy. Yeah, no, definitely. Like it was a game, right? Yeah, exactly. It was just a game. But where in this film, it is in your face, brutal. And one of the shots that I know that you really liked uh, was the hands hanging from the barbed wire uh, during the first battle. Yeah, it's insane. It's, it's there's so there's uh, the huge battle that's about like what 30 yeah. or 40 minutes into the film which feels like a climactic battle scene that you would see in other films but it's crazy it's insane and it's like so early on in the film 
and there's a man running away and there's this bomb that's coming down at the same time and he like grabs on the barbed wire to kind of pull himself up but the bomb like hits him and literally the explosion and smoke goes everywhere and just reveals two hands like remaining on the barbed wire with no body yeah so like horrifying image I, that like was shocking to see from a yeah, film that's you literally 90 would years never old. see that in in films from the 40s and 50s about film and even going into like 60s and 70s like there are just some movies that won't show that but the fact that this showed that was really bold it and that's where that's where the special effects really work i i want to talk specifically about how the writers set up these characters um so it's First, they're like with their own platoon, uh, platoon where they have to go and meet them, but they're kind of set up with this older platoon of men. And I think the contrast between the young recruits with these men who are just like so jaded is like such good storytelling because it constantly gives all these different characters to react. And the way they set up each individual of these young boys is like so smart but you don't really realize it until you go throughout the film. In the very beginning, you're just like kind of, it's really hard to follow which character is which. You like don't yeah. know their names really. You don't know who is who. And I think from like a filmic standpoint, they're specifically trying to show you that these are literally just numbers. So like they're like numbers in a line just for more casualties, just to put more men out there to like run against the front line. There's like, they want you to not know who is who until you get further along the line where they're like eliminating these men and these kids basically until you're down to like the true main character, which is Paul, which you don't really realize that until like 30 or 40 minutes into the scene that he's the main character. Yeah. I found that to be really strange uh, myself when I'm trying to figure out who the main character is and where they come from. Cause Paul almost comes out of nowhere as the main character. But also I think that plays into when you say like they were just numbers I think it actually plays into how the actual title of the film and how it ends in the novel because the novel ends with Paul dying and then it's just a situation report that gets sent back to mm-hmm. like the the offices for the Germans and it just says all quiet on the western front as if like nothing happened as if Paul's death was not significant and Didn't yeah and so then yeah so again like when you're saying that they're just a number that they're that these older soldiers are jaded by is because they realize that it just doesn't matter how you are as an individual in this war because there's a bigger thing happening and and then that actually gets tackled in the middle of the film um when the company when they finally get to relax and they finally get to eat they start talking about almost the politics of war and just how they don't have a they don't have a dog in this fight it's the people it's the leaders of the countries that do and that's where cat poses the well just let them fight naked in a field and just swing clubs at each other just just fight <laughs> over and I, and I think that's actually really yeah. impactful because it because it sets up for Paul at the end when he goes back to his hometown when he realizes how no one understands that the fact that he's just another person he's just he's just a human being in this and there's nothing that he can is going to contribute that's going to do anything to truly further the agenda of any of these countries who are in the war or to even end it no, it's so true. And I think that's the strength in the directing as well, too, the way it's perfectly crafted. And it's a good representation of being frustrated by a film, but not being frustrated in the way that you're you're mad. Because as the film goes on, you may be frustrated and, and annoyed in the fact that 
you don't really know who's who, like what's going on. Like I need more context of who should I care about and who do I uh, really want to like make it to the end in this fucking film. But it's just, just powerful directing that they do this because by the time you get through it, the further you get into the film, you start to realize that it, it was so intentional why they did that. Just like you said, to set up this, you know, you only mean anything to this, this the higher ups because you're a mass, you're a mass number that can go out into the front lines. And I think it just, it's so smart the way they do it and the way they kind of slowly break these characters down to reveal more about yeah, them. And, and especially with like the older men um, that are there and <laughs> when they have to beat the rats, <laughs> like it's all the young kids are like, what the hell? This is yeah. crazy. And the guys are like, no, get, get your shovels out. It's time to like kill the rats. Like we got to get this over it's like with. Charlie Day and it's always sunny. <laughs> yeah exactly they're all but it, it, yeah it's so interesting because it's like they start out nameless we finally get to know them by the few uh, that do survive over the course of the film uh we get to finally know their identities and then it's just all taken away at the end when everyone dies and there's no real like bow the the bow in the film is not with the actual characters it's just the yep war sucks here it is it's horrible and horrific and and that's what's lasting and impactful about it is that you're invested in not the characters as you're you're more invested in the characters as a whole and as humans rather than just as what they say and what they do because what they say and what they do is just a reflection of what they're experiencing definitely i think it when we kind of finally get to understand who our lead is who the main character that we should be caring the most about is paul and it's after we go through that battle scene, we have a moment where he's kind of fighting on the cemetery and he um, kind of gets overrun by the enemy line and falls into a manhole uh, where a British soldier who is his enemy as a German is attacked and he basically stabs him. But the British man doesn't die instantly, he slowly dies out. And it's in fact over like almost a full day where the, he's just kind of stuck in this manhole behind enemy lines while he's essentially kind of losing his mind because he killed this man. He saw him die slowly. He finds his his uh, photo of his wife and child, and he just is coming to the fact that like this is the first man he's ever killed. Yeah, it truly haunts Paul, and I think that is really it works really well in that scene because he finally has a face to the violence and the horror that he is also a part of. Because in reality, when he was just fighting in the trenches, he's just shooting away, you know at anyone and so he doesn't know like who what bullet hits who who hit who but he is able to actually put a face to the violence that he commits you know yeah it it truly haunts him i think part of this scene is where i have some of the issues with the film which is like the over just the heavy-handed and over-reliance on dialogue sometimes especially in, in the manhole scene where he's alone and he's talking to this dead body and i do think it's like pretty horrific like you we keep seeing these still shots of this dead body and his mouth is open his eyes are open uh and it's freaky and when he talks to him you definitely get the the understanding that he's really really messed up by the fact that he's just killed a man for the first time but it, it kind of drills it over and over and over and like well the whole film is already about it and we have the main character now who's just constantly saying like oh this is so bad like i shouldn't have done this over and over it like pulls me out of the film and it's just like all right this is so preachy this is so much but then the film carries on and it continues and you like have more of these character interactions and I'm like, okay, I forget about it. And I can continue on because then the dialogue is so good. It's so written. And I think that's when it comes to some of the adaptation parts, especially being so early on uh, being one of the first 
full feature length adaptations of a book, I think they rely very heavily on some of that direct dialogue for the book. And sometimes I think early on, they just don't know when to pull back or when to stop with the dialogue. Yeah, I, I definitely felt that that scene in particular does get a little too much after a certain point. Like if it was just like he said his first few lines and then that's kind of where the scene ends, I think that would have been just as fine. Because then it just, you keep showing the dead body and it's almost funny in a way because the actor who's playing the dead body, you can see him breathing and I think he blinks at one point. So it just goes to show that like, yeah, even for 1930 and as, uh, as great uh, of a film as this was for showing the horrors of war and, and doing a lot of practical effects, they still couldn't even nail down just having personally still not even like looking like they're not even breathing, but it still was. So it was kind of funny uh, with that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a particular shot where you can see him breathing and um, that's probably due to the restoration. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you saw this in theaters uh, on like a, I don't know, maybe a lesser than projector Yeah, back on their standards uh, on 4k TV. Like we're watching. Yeah. Back on their standards. Maybe you wouldn't have noticed that at all. No, Probably not. Um, so I wonder if that's one of those things where it's like, we're slowly peeling away and uprising things to the point where we're like seeing <laughs> things that like we should probably. Yeah, probably. But I find that fascinating. That's not like annoying to me. And that doesn't take me out of the experience. It's a more of a little funny little uh, niche thing. I mean, they do so many things special effects wise in this film. That's so impressive that it's like, I, I, I will certainly overlook that. One of the scenes that I found um, a little troubling and also very compelling was the three French girls scene. Um, so later on in the film, after we have like the climatic ba battles and these big moments and we're losing a lot of these these uh, soldiers, we get to a point where they're kind of relaxing these three men and they find French girls that are like right across from the water where they're not supposed to cross in this river. And they are kind of beckoning the women. They are uh, really uh, thirsty for the women, as we'll <laughs> say in a modern term. Um, and eventually they lure the, the women by essentially showing them food. The women care way more about food than they do the men or the men's company. Um, and the men later on sneak over uh, to the women's house uh, later in that night. And I found it compelling just because it is a very compelling thing of just like wanting some sort of intimacy during a true like horrific point in your life. Like just trying to find any distraction uh, with just like a humanistic pleasure, like sex from a, from a person. But it, it's also very conflicting because... <laughs> it's just odd that like they would invite them over just for food and the way they portray the men having food. It's like one of the men in the film, one of the soldiers, is just like holding a piece of bread and he's like constantly dipping it in the water <laughs> yeah. as he's swimming. It's just like, who would want that bread? It's, it's so disgusting. Like he keeps like dipping it in the water and then he brings it over on later at night. And part of the annoyance for me is like, it, there's just not, there's just not enough clarity when it comes to like, the relationship with the women and i know ben you oh, like this yeah. scene more than i did especially later on uh when they supposedly have sex it's very important. yeah i i actually do like the scene it is a little it's it's a little comical of how they do set it up especially with the bread because yeah. i was thinking the same thing too like that bread is probably not I'm so it's not glad. good anymore yeah <laughs> but then i was trying it looked like he was purposely dipping it into the yeah. water right Dude, I was trying to be like, well, maybe back then bread, like people still ate bread, even though it was a little wet. If you just let it dry out, I don't know. <laughs> could have been very stale bread, so it wasn't even wet at all. Yeah, time yeah, it could have been. But and so for me, it, so the reason why for me like this really stands out is, and I'll take it from kind of the beginning, is 
So at first, it, it you you get they get this intimacy that they have been desperately wanting, and for the women, they get the intimacy intimacy too. But they also get food, and they're surviving because they have to remember that the war, of course, was fought in the trenches and on the front lines, but it also drained a lot of the resources from these countries. So there's obviously a lot of of need uh, for food. So I can I'm so I'm kind of okay with that with the women kind of using them for food, but for me, what really stood out was later on when we assume that they had sex with these women, but we don't know because they they did not show it and they probably would never. They didn't even show it leading up to it, really. It's all Yeah, strange. but that and that's what I love about it. So so kind of set this up. So they're they're eating the food. So it's Paul and two of the other guys go into this house where the women are and all of a sudden the the camera starts to just dolly in and just zoom in onto this kind of, on just like the backdrop of the scene and there's just nothing going on, but you hear Paul off screen with the girl that he kind of uh, partners up with. And he starts saying this and I want, and I want to read it because it, it, to me, it's just really powerful. So Paul says, Suzanne, I wish I could tell you something. I wish you could understand darling. I'll never see you again. I know that. And I wouldn't even know you if I did. And yet I'll remember you always if you could only know how different this is from the women that we soldiers meet. No, 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 not the war. You. That's what I'm talking about. It seems as though all war, terror, and grossness had fallen away from me like a miracle, like something I never believed. And to me, one, it's just hauntingly beautiful to kind of say to this woman that you, you don't know, but you just assumingly you had sex with that I'm never going to see you again, that this is just a one time thing and yeah it's a little sleazy if you want to take it from that angle but also from a man who is experiencing war he could die any second he's admitting to this random person that this is that this is life this is how it works from a again i guess from a sleaziness standpoint but it's how it just works where i'm not going to see you i'm german you're french we're not going to be with each other when the when the war is over and i also think that kind of represents how he how Paul and all the rest of the guys first enter the war, they enter it with this sense of happiness and enjoyment, but then they slowly start to realize that they are going to come back different, that they're never going to see like how seeing the girl, he's they're never going to see the normal life again. And I think that's emphasized at the end when he says, it seems as though all war, terror and grossness had fallen away from me like a miracle. So it, it's sort of opposite in that sense where it's like war and terror fell onto him but when he sees this girl it just goes away so it's like that one slither that one moment where he is happy again where there is that joy in the world but he knows that that's not going to last it just can't from this point forward and so i know it's a little cliche with how it's set up and it's a little goofy with everything but to me it really that really stood out when we're trying to put it all together and just not even talking about the war but it has this nice little beautiful moment between just two people yeah, it's funny because it's it's something that I love conceptually, and it's definitely like a cliche. And in war films, moving on, where it's like the the rugged soldiers meet the local village girl who's just like 
all tattered and they they help her and that shows the men that they're humanized and they're but that's and they're, not what happened in this strong film. characters and they that's... care no i know i'm just saying that that is like right. a cliche but what happens in this film i think is completely unearned like i love the 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 full sentence and i love the writing it's really beautiful writing but the woman is just completely used as an object just for the character to say this. Like, we don't even know who Suzanne is. We don't even know that's her name until he says it. We know nothing about her other than she's French and she's hungry. Like, there's no setup at all. So, like, when he says all of this, it's empty to me. It's like, <laughs> yeah, he may feel like that. But, like, I don't, like, why does he care about this woman that much? Just because he had sex with her once and that's it? Like, th we need more. We need more of a relationship before you can just say that. They're using her as an object. And that's simply what it is just to have this, like, profound statement. Which is, is a very cool, profound statement. But in my opinion, it's just not earned. Not earned remotely. Yeah. There's not even, like, 1% earned. Yeah, I think that, yeah. I mean, we we harped on it so much in the previous episode with the Broadway melody, but like if this film was made in today, I'm sure that Suzanne would have much more to her <laughs> in terms of her character and what she says. But definitely, yeah, definitely. I, and it's sad, it's sad to say it, but we have to just chalk it up to the time where, yeah, she was used. She was French, and they were just like, "Well, she's French. No one's gonna even understand her." Um, so it's like, <laughs> yeah, which is also something. Yeah, so it's like it's like just put it away. And again, like we didn't read the book, so. I don't know exactly how it's set up in the book or if it even exists in the book, but for the film, I think it just works really, really well. Um, at least how I took it in with setting up a nice, beautiful moment and just kind of almost Paul admitting life is not going to be the same. I mean, to me, I, I love the concept of this so much that I just wish this was more of the film, I, I, especially the way this happens. Like this is, probably like closer to the third act of the movie when this happens. So it feels so odd when it comes to pacing because it's like so slow and it's like giving you some backstory about where they are and the people they're around in the war and like not only the soldiers experience, but the civilian experience, but it's just not, there's not enough for it to be earned properly in, in that particular moment. But I do love the idea of it. I just wish there was more. Yeah, certainly. Uh, there's definitely, especially in the middle of this film, where it does slow down with its pacing, and I think it, it's kind of the relentless, the relentless aspects of it of the war that they kind of just keep throwing at you at the beginning, and just how horrific it is. Uh, but it, it, it does mm -hmm. pick up, and I actually think it picks up in, in the next scene that I wanted to talk about, which is with with Paul going back home. So first he goes back home, and he's happy to see his mom and his sister. There's all that, but then he also sits in a bar with older men from the town and they're talking about the war as if, as if they know what's going on, but they're not actually fighting it as if their war, it can still be something that the Germans can achieve to win. And at this point, Paul is realizing after everything he went through, after he was injured, after he's seen so many of his friends die, the war is just almost a thing you can't even fight anymore. It's just a losing effort. Yeah, definitely. I, I really actually enjoyed that scene where he's with his dad and his dad's friends and his dad is kind of using him as a prop to like show off that his son's like a proud soldier who's like survived. And then they kind of basically just ignore him as they talk like above him, basically. It's like he's still a little kid, essentially. Yeah. And I loved his performance there. Yeah. Paul, Paul, the actor who plays Paul, I think that this is his finer moments in the film is when he goes back home. So then to as that keeps going with him being back home, he's walking through the streets going towards the schoolhouse where he is at the beginning of the film. 
And at the beginning of the film, those streets outside the school are full of people cheering. There's soldiers going off to war. Everyone's really excited. But when he comes back, it is just empty. It is silent. And that's really profound and impactful because you, you start to get, you start to realize that, wow, how many people have died from this town? How many people are gone? How many people left for the war? How many people are still there, but they're just not coming out and being as celebratory as they were earlier in the film. And then when he gets to the school to visit the professor, the professor is giving the same speech and shit that he was giving at the beginning of the film which is what got paul in there in the first place and he's resentful towards him to his professor for that yeah it's like nothing has changed but everything has changed but no one's willing to admit it right yeah yeah so much has changed and and so that like it the beginning scene and then when paul finally gets back is a nice uh juxtaposition with each other because he was everyone was so excited to go and then when he comes back this like younger group of boys are they're excited themselves because they're like oh yeah we got to go be these iron men that that the germans are praising that we need to have this national pride to to go out and fight and paul and and the professor insists that paul says something and and paul he says he says a lot of things but this line is where uh it really sticks out so he says we used to think you knew the first bombardment taught taught us better it's dirty and painful to die for your country when it comes to dying for your country, it's better not to die at all. There are millions out there dying for their countries, and what good is it? And that is just so it. I it's I again like and we we talk about the heavy handedness of the film and how it can be a little relentless with the middle acts of the film, but it's that that's an impactful line because it it is dirty and painful to die for your country. It's a lot to put yourself out there for the risk of others for a fight that you are not necessarily part of in, in a way. And so it's, it's crazy, uh, you know, that he has the balls to say that to the person who is like, you got to go out there and fight. And he's called a coward for it. It's a ballsy character move to do in, in, in history and also to do in the film, but it's also just a ballsy film to do as, as a film, whether the way it's written, because it's essentially the climax of the film is, is Paul basically saying, f you to this teacher and like you're so wrong like all of you are wrong like you're going to go there and die and then i think that's perfectly portrayed in the following scene where he finally for a couple scenes later where he finally goes back to the war and he's like where is everybody and they're like this is it this is the platoon and it's just like all these young kids like these tiny little babies and at this point it's been like a couple of years and paul is like this weathered old man even though he's only a couple of years older than he was before yeah and i think they the new company members said they were like 16 years old which i had to kind of be like yeah. what <laughs> they're 16 yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it, it just shouldn't yeah, it just shouldn't time. be a thing and it, it is really impactful with the anti-war message and you know, this the the novel and the and the film were truly loved by Americans, and I think it's actually interesting with how everything is portrayed because it's all American actors, but it's about Germans, but it's also about Germans before World War II, and the Nazis, and so it's like, it you're almost like okay, are we prideful for the Germans? Are we not prideful for the Germans? But we're prideful for the Americans. Is this a story about us as Americans, or is this a story about Germans? It's very odd. But it is a product of Hollywood, so of course they use American actors to play Germans. Yeah, I think the the German aspect is it's really there in just design and and kind of story 
placement for where the setting is. But from there on out, it's really just about a human story. And it's really just about war in general. And just happens to be from the perspective of German. I think it's specifically because I came from the book. Yeah. I feel like if this wasn't directly from the book and if someone else made this, it would be the same kind of idea of the theme. It could be from any point of view. It could even be from a made-up war if they wanted to be. Yeah, it, and it's funny because when you say made-up war, like for us, looking back on it over 100 years later, it does feel really made up like how everything was done. <laughs> yeah. But again, we weren't there to experience it, but we still feel that lasting impact because people were truly just distraught and were put in besides just losing limbs and having their bodies disformed because of of the gases that they threw into the trenches because of all the bombs because of the artillery that they threw at each other but just the mental and the trauma that they that they were bringing back they were shell shocked they were they weren't even close to their normal selves yeah i think that's really highlighted there's a moment where paul and some of his uh, squad mates are injured and he goes to the medical ward and he's looking for uh, kind of like the reasoning from a doctor why one of his friends lost his leg because they kind of removed it without like any warning or out any telling and he goes to the doctor and he's just like hey like it's it's albert like i'm looking for albert like why why did you cut his leg off and he was just like what like i've, I've cut 16 people's legs off today <laughs> yeah. like, i have no idea who albert is like i've got to go do another surgery like goodbye like that's all that matters right now it's like a life or death situation it's that was one of the most like heartbreaking <laughs> points of the movie and it was like so short it's just a little snippet of this doctor yeah and that and that actually happens i think twice in the film there are two characters in the company who have their yeah. legs amputated and they had no idea they they're just laying in bed they're like oh my leg hurts i can't like it, it nothing something isn't right and the people around them don't even have the heart to almost tell them that like your leg is gone you are like it's just gone it got taken off because of your injury yeah, that was one of my favorite scenes when it comes to like the acting performances, uh, which is Albert Kropp played by William Bakewell. Um, and it's just like the realization of him slowly realizing that he literally has no leg is, is so scary and so haunting. Um, I do have issues with some of that medical ward scene, like the way they kind of like portray once you get taken out, you get brought back, like you will never be brought back in. You're going to be dead if you they take your clothes, basically. And it happens to Paul at one point, And I don't know, it, the way he comes back, it just feels too comical, I think, for what they're trying to do. I know he's just excited that he's still alive, essentially, but I just don't know. If they never exactly. Yeah, like they never show him like struggling. Like, yeah, like that's the, an issue with, with me, too. Like there's parts of this film that like it's very unclear what the injury is a lot of it seems like shrapnel or just explosions that kind of like cause them to get hurt but even when paul gets hurt just like a bomb goes off and he's just like ah my stomach and then they just like never address what the injury was but yeah. ever again it just they kind of like move past it and he gets wrapped up and healed and his friend has like a horrible leg removal and he just kind of gets sent home because of that yeah it's just one of the flaws of the film is that they couldn't go too graphic because of the time they didn't have that ability to mm -hmm. um, also makeup too i'm sure it wouldn't look yeah as believable well, i do know that the the novel is definitely more graphic because sure. in, the, in the graveyard fight so in the movie it's just following a graveyard and you obviously headstones are being blown up around them but in the novel like coffins are being 
brought back up out of the earth because of the explosions and corpses are everywhere. So it's not even just the corpses of the soldiers, but it's like these other decaying corpses that are yeah, around them. Freaking. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which they just couldn't obviously accomplish. And so they, so that's where like when you're watching the war sequences, you're like, Oh wow, it's really cool. Then you see someone fall down and it's like, wait, why, why did they fall down? That explosion happened 15 feet over there. Or how did that trap not get there? And like, again like you only see like those two hands on the barbed wire as like uh limbs that are blown off but oh, otherwise everything yeah. else is kind of They're left intact more. yeah it's like left intact and so it, that's like a a flaw of the film if you want to call it but it's not like it's a true so flaw yeah yeah like it, it is very minor there's little hiccups of audio when they're like firing and sometimes they get hit and they like fall and some like you said there's an explosion where like other people fall where it's like i don't know if you would fall or not like it's a little clumsy or awkward but like it's so overpassed by how grandiose and how big of a spectacle the battle scenes are while still maintaining this like sense of horror at the same time it very does feel it very much does feel like a horror film at points especially when they're in the trenches and they're losing their mind and they go back to fight and they just like they just become more and more broken as the film goes on yeah absolutely and, and it's funny because the sound one of the the things with the sound design is they don't have great uh, sound effects so when bombs are falling it almost sounds like when a, a tea kettle is um yeah heating, heating up, up. Whistling, <laughs> just like yeah. whistling mm-hmm. so it is what it is with that but i think that's actually what makes the film really great is because despite those deficiencies with the sound it was still beautifully crafted and the shots are just so well done they're complex and compared to going back to the broadway melody where it didn't have any of that and we were concerned about well maybe they couldn't do it because they had to worry about the sound whereas this like they didn't give a fuck they moved the camera wherever they wanted to and the sound followed it and it was perfectly executed yeah it is fun knowing that this came only <laughs> like within the same year essentially and yeah the, the drastic difference between this film and and broadway melody yeah it's pretty it's pretty crazy i think it might kind of highlight even more so the academy highlighting that film as best picture that year just simply to highlight their own film and the highest grossing film of the year for the academy yeah and one of my favorite things they do when talking about shot composition is how they use doorways and background movement so in many of the scenes there'll be a lot of like either open windows or door will be left open and you'll just see people crossing through so you have everything happening in the foreground but then you have stuff going on in the background and your eyes are just so they can go all over the place and you're almost satisfied with everything and that's just like those static shots but then when the camera's moving around like with within the trenches or like the machine gun is firing and as it's the machine gun is going left to right so is the camera as it's killing off people it's going really fast so it they did a really well uh they did a really good job with constructing and crafting the world around them so that when you have scenes like when paul goes back home and it's completely empty you recognize how empty it is you see the emptiness in the world rather than how full it was before when you have that background movement when things were shot through doors or windows yeah the cinematography is definitely one of my favorite parts of the film like like you were talking about shooting the windows of like the train station and the early on but through the school window and even when still shots 
are happening, they're still so dynamic and engaging, like you were saying. And then when they get to the actual war, it's kind of like more free flowing and open um, and surprised to even see some of these camera movements so early on, which is, I think it's kind of like a part mixture. Um, like we talked about a little bit, a part mixture of sunset and wings combined, like the beautiful artistic nature of um, sunset and wings kind of bringing in that war elements and the dynamic action of those war elements and how like well it was, was shot, um, kind of combining the two and creating, creating a beautifully artistic and thematic war film. Yeah, I, th- I think we said that that this movie felt like Wings and Sunrise uh, had a baby and this was the result. And Sunrise, I, yes, I was calling it yeah. Sunset the entire time. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. Uh, but yeah, but it, this is all from the from the mind of Lewis Milestone um, who directed the film and he, he just nails it right on the head um, with, with the shots, with the, with the acting, with, with you know, directing the actors and the lines and dial- it nailed every single thing like with that. And uh, it, it's truly impactful with how all that is just tied together, you know, throughout the film. Yeah, definitely. And when we talk about it, uh, kind of like introducing us to the world um, this like amazing writing from George Abbott and Max Anderson and Dell Andrews that really takes the time. Um, I do think the film's a little too long, could be like 10 or 15 minutes shorter, but it takes the time to really like dig in deep to show the world of these characters. For example, the scene uh, where they're trying to get food and they're like eating these beans and they're fighting over like how many they can have and how much they can't have. And, and earlier on in the film, when they get to the the camp for the first time, and they're just like, oh, like, we have some money. Like, you want some money? And they're just like, I don't want your fucking money. That's literally paper here. Like, <laughs> I don't want it. Do you got cigarettes? Do you have, like, food? Like, what can you give us? And it's like, those things just didn't need to be in the film, but it adds so much, like, texture and, and granularity to the film and, and the world around these characters. Yeah, I, I definitely felt, yeah, the pacing and the length of the film was, was a little bit long. It, the film ran at... Uh, two hours and 13 minutes. Um, and that's a firm, like 12 hours and 13 minutes of these films. Cause there really was no like after credits. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it fills up all that time. Yeah. So I, I just found that the world building to be really impactful. Cause again, when we do get to those points where there is no one in the world, when there's less and less, it, it provides more of like the, the grand, the grandiosity of the emptiness of the world and how people are dying off and, just the war and, and death in general. And uh, we're, I feel very heavy handed to keep on, to keep on saying that, but that really is what the film was about. And that's what made it so impactful and so enjoyed uh, by others. And then when we kind of tie that back to our beginning statement about film adaptations, I was saying how this is a film that combines a history and a novel. So does it almost so is it still that that entertainment is this still entertaining for us or is this something different that's such a hard question i think at the time it might have been even more entertaining even though you're closer to world war one you still get the entertainment value of cinema since it's being so new and young and some of the stuff that's in this film is definitely shocking because you've probably never seen it before but it still would probably balance and kind of contrast with how just horrible and violent and how the theme of the story really pushes against war and pushes against just fighting in general and how pacifism is just like the leading cause of the theme behind this movie so i think i think you can balance both honestly and i think that's kind of important when it comes to 
a medium-like film because it's so important to bring butts in the seats. You know, you have to you have to have this dual sense of being able to get people to come see your movie. So it has to be entertaining and engaging in that way, but also being able to push that narrative to, to show these characters in this world to then push a theme that's bigger and larger than just, you know, cool explosions, cool gunshots, shooting people down. Because I'm sure people were like clapping and cheering when like when these cool action scenes might have happened. But then, you know, you get to the next scene and it's like traumatic. And I think you need some of that to get people into seats to then, you know, have people actually see the film so i think it can be both yeah and that's definitely interesting because then i want to transition that to the people who didn't necessarily like this movie and what people surprise, didn't like this movie yeah uh surprise surprise the nazis oh, the did German. not like this movie what? yeah they did the not nazis. like their own nope yeah the nazis did not like this uh so actually on the opening one of the opening showings which is on december 5th of 1930 in germany uh Joseph Goebbels, uh, Adolf Hitler's lovely secondhand man, uh, brought a bunch of Nazis into the theater and just they threw sneezing powder in the air. They threw mice <laughs> in the theater like they're setting off stink bombs because they they hated this movie. They hate this movie for several reasons. But the main thing was that it, it promoted pa pacifism and anti-war message where the Nazis were really trying to drive behind this whole like, no, we got to fight. We got we need war. War. We need to be prideful in Germany. And this film challenged that because, again, like, it, even though it was Germans and it was about a German boy who realized that he shouldn't be so prideful in his country, it could really be adapted to anything. But I think that really applied to, to the Nazis because they were trying to say how great war is and, and trying to set up that whole mentality, which, unfortunately, they were slightly successful with when the World War II started, that they were able to get a lot of the countrymen in Germany behind it to say, yeah, like, fuck this movie, fuck this pacifism. We got to go to war. We got to show our pride. And so it, it's interesting how, and, and the Nazis weren't the only people to go against this movie in terms of banning it. Um, the film was also banned in Italy and in, in Austria in the early thirties. Um, and also uh, it was briefly in France in the sixties and in Australia at one point. So like a lot of like people, a lot of leaders for some of these countries, so you can kind of take from that what you may, they were not very happy with this film because of the anti-war message that it was promoting. Yeah. I'm not remotely surprised that uh, Nazis were angry at this film, <laughs> yeah. especially as we're building up to like the Nazi full regime and the, the full Germany under Nazi reign that we've kind of come to understand in history. I just yeah. totally see this kind of butting heads of this ideology and it's so clear that they would want to just like kill this film as quickly as possible. I even yeah. saw when doing some research that this film was not even shown in Germany until 1956. It was so hated that it even took 10 years, over a decade after World War II for this to be shown in the theaters. They hated yeah. it so much. Yeah, Remark, the the writer of the of the novel, I mean, he was just completely ostracized by his own country for for writing it and for the film which is incredibly unfortunate of what happened because the nazis would then take control only a few years later in 33 so they were effective in, in banning it and the controversy behind that for them it was successful uh, but that also then kind of for me when i'm watching it as someone who's who, who's jewish to kind of see this world of, of cinema where the, it was before world war ii where and i and i felt this way of wings as well where the germans were not 
viewed as they are now and i'm not saying that germany is viewed as they are now but in, some, but in the sense of like in the history and with the nazis because germany has been able to do a, i think an efficient job with kind of saying they're sorry <laughs> with what happened but when we're watching this from a, the viewpoint that this came out before world war ii that this was a different point in history it's really interesting to see how um how how it's all played out and again that kind of plays into the whole like well it's americans playing german so is the national pride for germany or is the national pride for america um so it's very confusing with that viewpoint but it, it is interesting to put into the context of the world and the history of the world as it is developing in this time yeah i mean hitler's plan was to take over the whole world and no, no one's just going to bow over to some some dictator to just say yes take it over like it's going to lead to war and it's going to lead to many many deaths as World War II did. So when you're looking at this film and it's just pushing the narrative of like, we don't need to fight, you know, like we can set our guns down and just talk. And it's way more important to consider all the young men that are just dying and all the generations we're killing off. That's not what the Nazi party wants to hear. And it's not yeah. what they want their, their whole country to hear. Cause they want to, you know, recruit as many members into the army, like especially with Hitler and his, his like power chokehold over Germany and the way like little kids and, uh, little kids just looked up to him as like this hero and savior and how like they would join the military just to fight for his honor and to fight for this like pride of their country and almost to like take revenge on how they were embarrassed by the loss of, of uh, and how World War One really went. So yeah. it almost had this like reverse effects. And I would, I know it's like, you would love to hear what the author would have to say or like to see his reaction now years later. And it's just, just crazy that it had almost like yeah. a reversed impact on germany but i guess it was going to maybe be destined to happen no matter what yeah yeah it probably was you know it, it this novel didn't come out in a vacuum the nazi movement didn't come out it didn't happen in because a of this yeah yeah it's there's so many different factors so ben there's one particular scene that i want to talk about and it's probably the most revered and talked about scene and it was actually a scene that i saw from the film having no idea that it was all quiet on the Western Front. I have no idea what movie it is. I don't even know the context of where I even saw the scene, but I specifically remember, maybe just because of how powerful the scene is, of Paul reaching his hand out to the butterfly and just just dying. And the slow buildup and the tension that they draw from, like showing the British soldier kind of like aiming his sights and you're just like, oh no, like this is the way our hero is going to go down. Like this is heartbreaking. So I think when you see that and, I'm sure there's been so much discussion over what the butterfly means and what that is seen or how that's seen through Paul's eyes. Um, do you have any like interpretation of what do you think that moment is trying to say in the film? Well, I, I think it is supposed to kind of be the, Oh no, like our main character is going to die uh, with that aspect. But, but the butterfly, uh, I would have one theory for what it does represent. Mm. And it's like that metamorphosis of, Paul's and and really everyone in the second company their transformation from the young boys and the happy go luckiness of fighting in the war to then being going through the war and then coming out of it and so not exactly of a butterfly but I guess in the cocoon phase it, it's a huge transformation and I, it could be horrific I mean it looks pretty horrific of videos I've seen of butterflies transforming I hate yeah bugs. yeah no, <laughs> it's it's pretty yucky but uh. And so it's like, again, that juxtaposition of like the butterfly being this really beautiful thing. And then it's sitting in the war fields and the trenches and Paul's reaching out and there's a gun and he, you know, he gets shot. 
it it all like um it all works together as opposites uh but it works really well of how that is set up that's so, so interesting and such a yeah. cool point because i've never really thought about the butterfly as like the cocoon or the transformation of like the character um from one to the other i i, I don't know because it's funny when, when i first talked to you about this film and i'm and i was just like i just don't think it's like set up enough the more i've thought about it the more i've like kind of like changed and gone back and forth for the film but when looking at it and and thinking about it more I, th- I love that aspect of it just being their transformation. But I almost, when I first thought and kind of thought about it a little bit more, I see it as like he broke the mold, you know, like the the country and the army, they were like specifically like building these men and shaping. Like there's a line specifically that Paul says where their, their, their thoughts are made of clay. And like, it's because they're being manipulated and massaged by their father, by their parents, by their, by their country, by their teacher, like literally everyone around them is trying to convince them and change their point of view. And as soon as he like snapped out of that, and like broke it just for a second, it got him killed. So in, in a weird way, it's just like, it was probably worth it to him. You know, he was like so fed up of it. And it's such a small little gesture that it's like this huge grandiose moment and i think it's will forever be a huge impactful moment of cinema just how storytelling can simply be done with one one shot not even yeah. fair character space but a simple hand oh absolutely so do you have actually do you have an issue then that that actually wasn't really the last shot of the film that the last shot was like the cemetery and then faded out on top of the on top of that is all the boys in the second company kind of walking past and their their first time they're arriving to the to the yeah. trenches do you do you almost wish that the final shot really was just the butterfly in paul's lifeless hand in the shot and then just fade to black the end because i almost Honest, think that would have been better i i do i respect that opinion and i could definitely see that last shot as being like cliche it's like oh yeah we get it these are the young kids and they're dead and they're all gone but i think looking back at it this like 90 year old film that was probably like so emotional i bet so many people are just like bawling their eyes out because it's heartbreaking and i think that leads up to like my point is that he like kind of broke it for the first time he like broke finally broke that mold uh by just letting himself go and reverting back to like being a child again because he never even got to like really finish his childhood like you know he left when he was probably like 16 or 17 and as soon as he does boom he's dead and then it's like not only that on the filmic standpoint and editing, we're going to rub it into your face even more and show you these young men, show you these young kids that they used to be, that they could have been, and they could have had this great life if it weren't for war. And now look, at it's just a field full of dead bodies for no fucking reason. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's the heart. It is the heartbreaking aspect of, of this film. And it's why I do enjoy it. Uh, and that's why I posed the question at the beginning of the podcast, was are we is it sick of us to almost like these films to like war films to like people struggling because it does perform a it's cathartic in a way to kind of watch it all unfold and to kind of be like oh my god like they went through so much and kind of compare it to yourself and it and this and that's all personal for however uh you know for everyone's life but it is really interesting how we take in films and and that goes beyond just war films that goes into uh horror films that goes into you know romance films if you just broke up with someone it if mm-hmm. it, it, it's all entertainment but it also is very interesting that we tend to really praise the movies that push the limits of uh, of ourselves of the human experience that 
pushes those boundaries because it's compelling stories, but also it can be very graphic and horrible and sad and emotional. Yeah, I think you hit the the nail on the head there. It's it's not we're not enjoying death. We're not enjoying like explosions and hands hanging from barbed wire. We're enjoying just how how they crafted this piece of art to to push a, a narrative like this while also maintaining this like awesome world building, these characters, this beautiful cinematography, this beautiful flowing and witty dialogue. It's just like a beautiful combination of elements and we appreciate it just because it has something to say while also being entertaining i couldn't agree more the third academy awards had 600 attendees with eight awards presented there were some changing with the rules uh, the nomination and winners were voted now by the entire academy membership and not just the board of the judges the academy members were also charged ten dollars fee for the first time for attending which, of course, was completely sold out. I also want to note that the Best Sound Recording category was introduced this year, uh, bumping up the second Academy Awards, originally at seven, to now including the Best Sound Recording for the third Academy Awards, bringing it up to eight. Yeah, so we're finally in this era of the Academy where it's recognizing some of the other aspects of filmmaking, uh, which is really interesting uh, to see how it's, does adapt over the years and add more and more categories and change categories over time as well. Best art direction, King of Jazz, Herman Rose. Best cinematography with Bird at the South Pole, Joseph T. Rucker and Willard Van Devere. Best writing, The Big House, Francis Marion. Best sound recording, The Big House, Douglas Shear. I was actually interesting about this category is Douglas Shear was the brother of the best actress winner, Norma Shear. Um, and so that would make them the first siblings to ever win in Oscar history. Oh, that's Fun cute. little tidbit right there. Best actor, George Arliss, Disraeli, as Benjamin Disraeli. Best actress, Norma Shear, the divorcee. Best director, Lewis Milestone, All Quiet on the Western Front. Yeah, so this is actually pretty significant that he won because this is also his second win uh, for Best Director. He won in the first Academy Awards for actually Best Comedy Director. Um, but also, this will now be the first time that a Best Picture winner and a Best Director winner are from the same movie, uh, which is a very common trend uh, throughout Oscar history. It's the most, if you win Best Picture, you're most likely going to win Best Director. It's not all the time, but it's definitely a very common thing that happens throughout the Academy's history. And the nominees for Outstanding Production? The Big House. The Israeli. The Divorcee. The Love Parade. And of course, our winner, All Quiet on the Western Front. And I want to note that this is the first film to win from Universal Studios. So unlike the last Academy Awards, you're getting uh, a film that's not directly from the studio. That's kind of the main head of uh, the production company from MGM. Yeah, yeah, this MGM, right? Yeah, it was MGM for Louis B. Mayer. It it's definitely a way more deserving win than the previous winner. Um, it's much more impactful, and I think you probably could tell based on my and John's discussion, we got a lot out of this film. There was a lot to talk about, a lot to touch on. And I, 
And I think that adds to the appeal for why people love this film and then voted for it to win Best Picture. And granted, you know, we don't know the other winners. We weren't at the time and uh, we just haven't had the time to see all these nominations. Uh, But um, we can have a really good sense of other uh, comparing to other Best Picture winners. And this one really stands out. Uh, So now when we go to rate the film uh, ourselves, I gave the film a, a 96. Uh, John, what what did you give All Quiet on the Western Front? I would give All Quiet on the Western Front an 85 out of 100. Yeah, and that's totally, I think, a fair um, a fair rating for it. I think I, I think for me, I gave it higher um, just because I felt like this was a more of an A movie. But I know that you tend to approach these movies from more of the star rating standpoint and, and more from... I wouldn't say a general aspect of it, but definitely giving a more general rating because there's so much, there's so many nuances to a film. Uh, so that 85, I think that really translates more to like a four, four and a half stars, right? Yeah, yeah. I originally, so I, I'm a very big Letterbox fan, <laughs> so I review all my films via five stars through Letterbox, um, and I just kind of do it just for my own enjoyment and tracking to see like trends over the year and over the years and kind of looking at my top list and whether I think they're accurate or not. So for me, like a four star could be equal. Um, in this case for us, it would be equal like an 80. Um, but I think an 80 for one film over the other doesn't mean that I like them the same. You know, you know I could like one film that I give an, a four out of five or an 80 better than another film that I give an 80 or four out of five. Um, and I originally had this film at an 80, but then it was tied directly with wings and I just, the, the longer I've talked in, to about this film and, and just thought about it, the more it kind of struck me with how nuanced yet heavy handed it was. It was such like a, a dual balance that this film did. And it just has really stuck with me. A lot of the imagery and a lot of the moments throughout the film that I just had to like bump it up a little bit. Um, and I think maybe on like even a second rewatch, this might even be like a 90 out of, out of, out of 100 for me. It might even increase watching it again. Yeah, it's kind of funny because uh, when we first for two things because the first when we first talked about this, you were more on the side of Wings actually being the better war film, uh, which I was a little surprised at, but but I also got get that. Um, yeah. You know, well, I don't think I would have said or said that it was a better war film because I think this is totally a better war film, just having war as the descriptor right. for that. But I think I was saying originally that I enjoyed Wings. And especially now after having this conversation where we kind of talked about what's enjoying and versus what's entertainment and what's trying to represent um, nonfiction on film and tell a true story based on history, it's, it is kind of won me over more. Like this is a way better constructed film. It's, it's way more powerful and it's a, such a stronger piece of fiction um, based on nonfiction that Wings could ever be. You know, Wings is still based off of World War One, but it's just so unrealistic and it's fun in that aspect of seeing those those fighter fighter pilots and it has some emotional moments but i the, i think this is the true testament for what a academy and outstanding production the best picture is for us and especially for me it's just it has everything that i want and you know, characters i care about amazing cinematography some compelling characters and really outstanding witty writing uh, while also just telling a larger theme and just a much bigger world and picture that you want to know more about, even though it may end on a, a very sad but very powerful moment. 
Yeah, I think all I have to say to that is ditto, because that's exactly how I felt about the film. And and actually, it was funny that you said that you bumped up your score originally, because when I first watched this film, I actually gave it a 98. And I oh, bumped wow. it down. Yeah, I, I bumped it down. And and again, like I, this was really on in my process of, of watching these movies. Um, and I was... I was really like amazed by it and I still truly am amazed by it, but I think I had to bump it down a little bit knowing some of the films that were to come after it, that I would give similar scores and I would compare it. I'm like, well, I, I, the pacing was a little off for me. The sound was, wasn't the best. The acting was really good and compelling, but it wasn't great or transcendent that you would get from some other films uh, over the years from some other best picture winners that would also have some best actor performances and best actress performances as well um so i i think i think we are both our scores are totally uh totally great for this film uh but some other scores and ratings uh to kind of list out for this film so rotten tomatoes uh percentage gave it a 98 percent fresh uh the average critic score is a 91 is a 9.17 out of 10 which is really high the audience score is an 89 and the audience score which is out of five is a 4.24 and the imdb score is an eight um so really high marks all around uh for this film and 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 it's deservedly so Um, but one thing that was actually interesting for me when looking at the awards and uh, you know one best picture and one um best uh best pick uh, best director i mean um but it lost on two categories that i actually would have expected it to win for and that was best writing and best cinematography. Uh, so, kind of touching on best writing first, how did how do you feel that this didn't win? Do you feel like it didn't win just because it was an adaptation? Um, because the other four you don't have that category, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, the the other uh, nominations that categories there were there's Disraeli, which is based on the play. There's Divorcee, which is based on the novel uh, called The Ex Wife. And then there's Street of Chance, which is based on a story. But then the winner was The Big House, which uh, which is original story uh, for film. Uh, so I, I think it's actually really interesting that that was the first movie to win. Uh, one of the first movies to win Best Writing uh, that was also an original story and that beat out this already beloved novel and film, clearly. Yeah, I think they probably gave it to Mary maybe a little extra credit points specifically because of that. And I think maybe that is what, you know, we'll get to it later on throughout the years of the Academy. But I think that might have been what led to the adapted writing and the original writing uh, for best screenplay. Simply to have that, you know, you have this, this platform or this kind of text to base it off of. So I I could see how someone was looking at that. They could see it as a kind of a a step up compared to, you know, making an original piece or original screenplay. Yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting. And and, uh, I think that is going to play a factor in many films to come, which if it's based off something or how strong the writing is uh, for why it may win certain categories or not. Uh, But with cinematography, I for sure thought this would have been a lock uh, just because of so many great shots but it lost to a actually the documentary called with bird at the south pole uh, which is about rear admiral richard e bird and his first quest to the south pole uh so i can imagine how compelling (laughs) and how great that must have looked i again like we haven't seen it and hand up that's our own fault but uh for that to beat out uh all quiet on the western front it must have some really really good visuals 
Definitely. I think that's like an awe spectacle. If you look at the poster for Woodbird at the South Pole, it's um, a quote on it that says, actually filmed in the vast unknown of the Antarctic. So it was probably a huge part of the marketing, a huge part of what drew people to the film. Um, so I think the probably cinematography is something that like, I want to watch this movie so bad now because I like want to see how well we documented this. And it was probably an insane, insanely difficult thing to do to, to, to film something on these film reels in the bright, harsh sunlight while also being freezing cold on the South Pole. Like it's probably very challenging to do. Oh, I think yeah. you get it again, a little extra points because of that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure because of that. So, uh, very interesting stuff. So now we have to ask that beloved question, John. Is All Quiet on the Western Front worthy of the Best Picture Award? Yeah, man. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I think you have to look at this film as like a separation from the last two. Like we described that it's kind of like the combination of sunrise and, and um, of wings combined this artistic picture that still has these technical merits and still has this on spectacle that gets butts and seats, you know, it's, it's so heartbreaking yet hard to take your eyes off of. And of course it deserves that. And I think moving forward, it sets a precedence of what an outstanding production should be. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, think this movie has a huge lasting impact that i think if like still today like if people were were to watch it it's so applicable to so many current events and just feelings about war and and pacifism and and, and anti-war messages in general so it's extremely powerful uh in that regard and yeah and it it sets the tone it it sets the bar like it's all the way up here it's saying hey like you got to reach up to here to really be a best picture winner and for me, it was definitely a film that that stands out in that way, and that it's a film that you then see replicated in so many future war films to come. I, I referenced before; it felt like Saving Private Ryan, The Trenches. It felt like with 1917, 1917 took so much of the aspects and the cinematography from this film. Uh, I even think uh, Kubrick's film Path of Glory uh took some inspiration from all quiet on the western front so this movie was really impactful and inspirational for future filmmakers to come to kind of replicate these war scenes to show the drama and the harrows of of war so for me it is certainly worthy of best picture well thank you for joining us all thank you for coming down the beautiful golden statue this is worthy i'm john and I'm Ben. Thanks. No. No, Paul. I've been there. I know what it's like. That's not what one dwells on, Paul. I heard you in here reciting that same old stuff. Making more Iron Men. More young heroes. You still think it's beautiful and sweet to die for your country, don't you? Well, we used to think you knew. The first bombardment taught us better. Dirty and painful to die for your country. When it comes to dying for your country, it's better not to die at all. There are millions out there dying for their countries. And what good is it? Thanks for listening to Worthy, a breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. 
That's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.